0: Scaffold is supported by the Architecture Foundation, bringing new voices to the conversation about architecture in London and around the world. For more information and upcoming events, visit architecturefoundation.org.uk. I'm Matthew Blunderfield, and you're listening to Scaffold. This week I speak with Luke Jones and George Gingell, hosts of the Architecture podcast About Buildings and Cities. Starting in 2016, the podcast quickly became a go-to source for new interpretations of familiar histories of architecture, with detours into film, fiction, and comics as well. The podcast has covered everything from architects like Le Corbusier and Alberti and Zaha Hadid to the manga artist Katsuhiro Atomo and the writer W.G. Sebald, to name just a few. With each subject, Luke and George will often produce multiple hour-long segments Offering these deep cuts on the buildings and architects that are somehow both overexposed and underappreciated among contemporary audiences. In our conversation, George and Luke reflect on the value of reconsidering the all-too-familiar architectural canon, and the role of new media in shaping a discourse that can thrive outside the confines of academia. I met with Luke and George a while ago, back in September of 2022 at Luke's flat in Bethnal Green. Just following the release of their series on the Italian Renaissance architect Andrea Palladia, they've since aired a new series on Antoni Gaudi. And now, here's the interview. I hope you like it. Just as a kind of setup for this conversation, the, one of the reasons I approached you is because I was asked to write a review of the podcast. <laughs> And I mean, I've never written a review in my life. I don't think it's in my demeanor to go around writing reviews for some reason. <laughs> I'd much rather have a conversation. Um, and that's not to be passive or indirect about it, but it's more to get to the bottom of something.
1: It kind of throws up something kind of interesting because like at various times, I've sort of thought about how how you would um, like think about what's valuable about the podcast obviously it's valuable as like entertainment and it's valuable as something that people kind of get uh, get something out of but if you like actually think of it as architectural history within like within the sort of terms that architectural history values things then it doesn't really have any value because it's not doing any kind of primary research it's not really It's not discovering anything except, like, us going through the process of discovering things for ourselves and kind of talking it out. Mm. So there are things which I think the, like, the kind of objective worth of which are quite hard to, like, identify within the terms of, kind of, architectural history as I understand it, which obviously, like, also, like, neither of us are actually architectural historians or kind of, like, within the discipline of it. I've done a very small amount of teaching it at, like, foundation level, but basically, It's a hobby. But I think the discipline of
2: architecture history is so big and broad um, that there's an awful lot of value between the kind of state of the art of scholarly research and uh, the basic survey course, which is kind of where we are. I think for me, the value of the podcast is that um, I'm interested in the subjects that we cover and um, talking to Luke about them helps me understand the topic. Hmm. Uh, And that's a fairly enjoyable process.
0: And I mean, the topics vary quite widely. The one that I was listening to most intensely was the most recent series on Palladia, uh, of which there are six episodes. Um, But I mean, before that, you've done a series on Scarpa, uh, Otto Wagner, Zaha Hadid, um, Tarkovsky, which is one of my favorites as well, You did, I think, uh, Venturi Scott Brown. I mean, there's a whole, Bernard Rudofsky, there's a whole, in a way, um, spectrum of architectural history um, Mm. that you're examining. Um, But I think if we could go back to Palladio, the most recent one, which in a way feels kind of emblematic of a typical about buildings project. Mm. There was a nine or 10 part series on Corbusier as well. Um,
1: Incomplete. The first, the first <laughs> nine or ten parts, which yeah. gets to the beginning
2: of his career.
0: Um, it, there's something to, to do with retreading the, the architectural canon as we know it, and I think that's kind of where I want to begin. Why, um, for you, was Palladio worth looking at again right now?
1: I think we are quite attracted to things, topics which are kind of like within the canon, but which actually, when you kind of really examine them, you don't know very much about, or you have a kind of superficial, you kind of feel like you know what it is, but you don't really know how it fits into a kind of specific context, and how you haven't really kind of got into the, into the detail of it, and into sort of thinking about what makes it kind of great, if it is great, or, um, or yeah, kind of distinctive. Um, and I guess so, there's an attraction to doing things, kind of topics like that, because in a way they feel like they're sort of too famous or something. But also,
2: the quality of the material stands up. Yeah. Well, it's it's really good. Yeah. Um, you said you were in Venice and you rang up on the phone and said, I'm bored of doing all this rubbish stuff. I want to do some of the good things I've been looking at, like Carlos Scarpa and Palladio, and so okay. we did them. Yeah. Uh, um, <laughs> and <laughs> That's, well, more or less what you said. Okay. Yeah.
0: Um, so it sounds like there's this kind of um, the value in reappraising these types of figures is to do with the fact that there's so much received wisdom around them now. Yeah. That right. we've kind of forgotten these deeper or more integral or more important reasons as to why why they're valuable cultural figures in the first place.
1: I think that there's a kind of in-depth uh, there's a sort of like attentive study of like the specific building or the specific plan which feels like maybe it does figure in some people's education in architectural history at the, like at the start, maybe it's like a sort of first year thing that you might do. But in general, yeah, the big Figures and the big monuments of architectural history do feel like they come down to you slightly pre-digested, and that there is a sort of they they're already sort of totally like pre-narrativized, and uh, you don't really you don't really kind of experience them for yourself in some way. Um, mm. and I would say, yeah. though, in fact, that the, the 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 bulk of the kind of architectural population is
2: pretty naive to Palladio yeah well, in any meaningful way, so if we were going to talk about Rome Cool House again, which I'm sure we will mm. people have a like got a few takes yeah. in on that, whereas um I don't think I think most people probably couldn't necessarily identify a single Palladian building yeah yeah uh in like in, in actual like and they're even quite um people are quite knowledgeable about architecture. Yeah. Um, even though it, it, like, on the surface seems incredibly something you could put on the front of an architecture history book. Yeah. Um, so, it's in some cases it's definitely, possibly challenging conventional wisdom. Although I would hope instead of challenging conventional wisdom, we're just trying to look at things fresh.
1: Yeah. Mm. Um, and to try and make that process of looking a bit kind of transparent that the, 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 it's the sort of something that you accompany us, accompany us on in the, in the in the podcast I think that there's also there are specific things about Palladio which w- work as uh, well there are things about Palladio which I think kind of connect to recurring fascinations in the podcast mm-hmm. like I think we're really really interested in looking at someone's work and trying to work out like what the sort of generative principles of their of their kind of philosophy of design are like what these architects often like set themselves quite simple sort of geometrical rules or um, they have certain things which they kind of return to obsessively which they obviously like really really like, but which are not necessarily foregrounded mm. in the rhetorical story that they tell about mm. their work mm. and I think one of the things that I think we do quite well in the podcast quite often is sort of calling a spade a spade like you sort of see you see the thing you say yeah i kind of observe that this keeps happening or that this seems to be really really important mm-hmm. in the work even though it's not the thing which you would read in the like 200 word summary of their of their kind of uh, their kind of work normally and um yeah i mean obviously in Palladio, like that is um the uh the the kind of plan grid or it's this uh, like incredible um, kind of obsessiveness about the elevation and these these kinds of things. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah, to me there is a kind of primary research going on but it has to do more with the intense awareness of one's own reaction to the material at hand and a narrating of that reaction and a sharing of that reaction Mm -hmm. so that you're not simply dusting off the old books and um, while there are sometimes likely passages you read aloud, it's always, how does that make me feel? <laughs> and what am I seeing here that maybe was overlooked and what I was taught about the subject?
1: Yeah, I think so. I think that, that, that a lot of people's experience of how they're taught to, like, uh, write about um, buildings in university is that you're taught to kind of read up and kind of identify lots of sort of received ideas and then kind of plug into them and kind of connect them together. Whereas actually anybody can just look at a building or experience a building or look at an image and kind of look at it closely and kind of analyse and originate all sorts of really, really interesting things which probably other people haven't noticed before. And that's a a thing which people are kind of curiously hesitant about doing, I think. It's strange because everyone has to
2: interact with buildings. Every day,
1: yeah. So we all know how to do it. Of necessity, <laughs> not necessarily in a very
2: uh, <laughs> yeah, not, but, yeah, but but like it's not like it's not like anyone's approaching it. You know, people you don't have to interact with paintings every day.
1: Mm. No.
2: Yeah. Sure. Um, and maybe a lot, lot of the art buildings that we talk about are kind of closer to artworks or are special or extraordinary, but. Um, a lot of the tools for um, thinking about them are the same as you would think about your environment generally. Yeah. Um, and sensation is very important to how you respond to build buildings. Yeah.
0: podcasting were a thing let's say in the 90s would this podcast be any different than it is now (laughs)
1: Um, would it be different if it was in the is there something particularly of the moment i guess in the way that we're doing it Uh, i think there probably was more at the beginning i think actually more and more we have i think we've tried to like wall ourselves off from uh the outside world in the podcast. And purely to just go on... I mean, I say that. We are actually doing a like rare bonus episode inspired by current events, but um, but the, uh, just after, which we'll be doing later on. But well, I but think that not, was intentional yeah. right at the beginning.
2: Right at the beginning, I wanted to do an architecture podcast where we didn't um, interview architects where they got to say what they wanted to about their work. Mm. Yeah. Because, I mean, that's a, a worthwhile job, but um, it kind of has constraints yeah. <laughs> uh, in how you're able to analyse things. Um, and... Um, yeah, I think also, like... Just sounding off, right?
1: Yeah, sounding <laughs> off, but then also, I think that there's... I don't know. I mean, I think that we could talk a little bit more about contemporary architecture, maybe. But I think if that If I knew he, anything about it, maybe. Once you yeah, start yeah. being really... Topical, all the time. I, I, yeah, it feels like you are. There's a certain sort of sort of kind of pressure, or mm-hmm. you you would be drawn no long by all sorts of other things which are kind of outside of your control. And then I think that actually, yeah, I'm I'm trying to be, yeah, like quite um <clears throat> that when I kind of conceive of what we're doing in the podcast, I'm sort of trying to like not think at all about what else is what else is going on or necessarily what the um, what, the connect, what the relevance of it might be mm-hmm. uh, but it's taken a little while to get there I think that that's also kind of comes from the kind of confidence of knowing what the podcast is and that we've been doing it for a certain amount of time and that ultimately actually all that really matters is that we enjoy what we're doing and it doesn't yeah. really matter what it is that much yeah.
2: mm-hmm. it just has to be something which carries on <laughs> Otherwise, it doesn't exist. Um, and then there's constraints in kind of, you know, it's got to be something which
1: is interesting enough to make you want to do it. Yeah. <laughs> um, Are we anywhere near what? If, what's the unpacked version of that question?
0: Well, I think for me, I totally recognise the constraints of topicality, you yeah. know? And I, I loathe it as well. I think that it's so, it's so limiting. Uh, it so narrows the kind of scope of interpretation and engagement when you're forced to contend with the author, yeah. literally. Yeah. And so I'm totally with you on that. <laughs> um, I think where the question's coming from, for me, has to do with the way we think about and tell history today. Mm. And the way that students of architecture today are being asked to reappraise history yeah. and, and kind of recuperate certain histories that never made it in in the first place. Yeah. And I just wonder to what degree that's something you feel like is within the remit or is that in fact um, totally beyond the scope of the project?
1: Well, uh, yeah, it's, I'm very aware of that as something which is going on in architectural history. It's something which is slightly outside of our ream, remit in that we're kind of limited to doing uh, subjects which are ex- sort of accessible to us, already accessible to yeah. us. I think that there is also so that's a kind of negative reason. Um, I think that there is also, um, for me, I think that there is a value in, and I really enjoy, trying to take on these things which are so kind of part of the canon that they're kind of kind of hackneyed, um, and trying to really unpack them and kind of understand what kind of brought them there in the first place, and um, I, so yeah, I think. I think that's right. I think that that the kind of expanding the canon is not really in our wheelhouse particularly. Um, and like fortunately that's something which a lot of other people are doing instead at the moment.
2: Maybe we do. But I think we don't have an I don't think we're capable of having an agenda like that in that um, I think we're just instantly as in, in in each moment kind of driven by our personal interests in yeah. which is Very scattergun. Yeah. There's no grand scheme. Um, We're not... I'm very not, like, tied into the institutions of culture at (laughs) all.
0: Um, Maybe this is a good chance, actually, to step back for a moment and talk more about where you two actually come from, how you met, and the original kind of impetus behind this podcast project. So we've known
1: each other since... 2005 Five. Uh, we met in first year uh, of architecture school and then um, and then we kind of were friends and but sort of at, low, at lower or, or greater yeah. intensity yeah and then I guess that the energy to do the podcast came out of I think we were hanging out a bit more and like enjoying talking and then we also did a series of holidays where we would go on these kind of bicycle trips and go and visit lots of, um, we did one to Belgium and we did one to, we'd done uh, one to Italy. and Two like, to Italy. And um, I don't know, I could like, that I think started to kind of create a sense that there was that we were really enjoying a certain sort of conversation, and I think we were both getting something out of that. And then I think we both also just were in a moment in our lives where we were listening to a lot of podcasts, and there was yeah. a kind of suggestion. didn't have a lot going on. <laughs> it's the kind of suggestion going on there. I was doing a bit of teaching foundation at that point, and then also doing I was doing a bit of like ex- people's extensions and planning permissions, as were you. Yeah. And there is like a certain amount, yeah. So there was a certain amount of like working from home, being quite bored and listening to 12 podcasts in a row or whatever that I guess implanted. I think I <laughs> still do a certain amount, yeah. Of that, yeah. Mm. Implanted the idea of doing a podcast. And then, yeah, the. Um, so we both, yeah, we both... I think we both have a slight chip on our shoulder as well. Yeah.
2: I think we, at that point, we didn't have a lot going on and we had something slightly through. Oh, yeah, definitely Although still that's do. Although that's probably not you, perhaps like the you. angels of our better conscience. Yeah,
1: but the, like, the, I don't think that... Um, well, let's keep going on that, though. Yeah. <laughs> but I don't think the podcast now... The podcast has then sort of... Obviously, there was a, like a certain amount of initial energy and stuff. It's definitely sh- shifted over time into being something that we're increasingly kind of good at but which also is a, like a fun thing that we do yeah. together
2: we had a lot more time at the beginning yeah we had the amount of time at the beginning I would say we put like a week into planning an episode a working week yeah mm.
1: um, we do a lot of writing and that kind mm-hmm. of thing and yeah, there's also would, the, anyway, there's lots of experiments think. in the earlier episodes like these um short stories and kind of I would love like things, if we
2: had if we didn't <laughs> have lives yeah I would really love to engage with that stuff more but um that I think as a sort of matter of the podcast survival it's not really we we uh, I think we've ended up with something which is the thing that we can actually do
0: yeah I just want to go back to this chip-on-the-shoulder comment and trying to understand more about, I guess, these motivations or the impetus. What did you mean by that? I mean, it sounds like, to me, both of you are the perfect embodiment of the para-academic. Yeah. That there is this... um, kind of difficult to discern relationship with institutions and academia, because, in fact, as you said, Neither of you are academics or historians, and yet bring this intense interest in history and the telling of history. Yeah. And so, George, is that kind of what you're alluding to there? That there are other ways of developing expertise and displaying it, or
2: it's a strange question because I don't entirely know. I think my response was really emotional. Mm-hmm. It's like mm-hmm. that's a, I. I um, I have a lot of respect for uh academic history. I think it's a slightly um it's definitely a different thing to what we do.
1: Yeah. Um yeah, I guess also like it's something that certainly you were very interested in. But like a university is not was not like a great place for you. No, it was terrible I was, yeah. that was, like, that well, was pretty so shambolic for.: Yeah jobs. you were like quite an extreme character when we met, like like sort of quite but uh, you know somewhat socialized. Uh, and then marginally. Yeah. obviously like yeah, you struggled in university for various reasons, um, but kind of I can sort of understand why there might be a, like a complex emotion there because. Actually, I did terribly in education. Yeah.
2: I got by on, on, on sort of being naturally good at some of the subjects, but I, was, I never understood what it was for. Um, I, had, I couldn't understand how the system worked.
1: You couldn't, you had, you were very dyslexic. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah.
2: yeah, yeah, yeah. I couldn't read or write, really. Yeah. <laughs> I still can't read, write. Right. Uh, so, I, I, by the reason why I never uh, have interacted academically with history is because I literally cannot write. Uh, and at the beginning of university, I could only just about read. Yeah,
0: that's incredible. Yeah, <laughs> um,
2: I'm still actually, I still actually really struggle reading. My default way, if we've got a text which isn't available in audio, I get like, I get like a machine reader to read it, and then I read it at the same time.
0: Right. So you have this kind of audio reinforcement. But
2: it's, yeah. it, it's a kind of strange experience, because they will you know, it'll be this old scan. So you're getting all the page numbers and all the little stars on the corners being read as <laughs> characters. A, 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 a.
0: <laughs> and because we're trying to smash through it, you get really fast. Uh-huh. which is what I started doing with your podcast actually putting things on an accelerated oh yeah after after a while
1: that sounds totally normal (laughs) it's quite like you quite quickly get used to it
0: but this is this this to me is so um, in a way revelatory to learn about you George in terms of the way you acquire information and the way you disseminate it that the podcast is somehow a kind of outlet for an alternate mode of communicating that kind of bypasses the constraints of text and academic text specifically, that there is this kind of avenue <laughs> that, that cuts yeah, right uh, through that.
1: It's, def- it's definitely something in the, yeah. It's de- I mean, like, podcasting and, like, new media in general uh, are, like, a great... They're kind of driven by enthusiasm like i mean obviously there is like a sort of cynical like marketing kind of influencer side to it but like a lot of it depend is like a place for uh which kind of gives a home for a kind of like like unfail unfeigned sort of enthusiasm and interest in stuff often with like relatively little quality control or kind of gatekeeping of any kind and you know what comes out of it is like obviously a very mixed bag but in general yeah it does I think it does create a space for kind of fantastically interesting uh, yeah like uh, thought and and content and kind of essays and things Uh, as we've we've recently kind of branched out into YouTube and tried to get the podcast on YouTube as well and I've been watching like a lot more YouTube and they're like fantastically interesting like video essays by these weird largely guys like on the internet talking about putting together like these kind of weird cultural references from books I've never heard of and computer games and all of this sort of stuff. And it's, I think it's... uh, I have, like... I still actually have, like, a very kind of utopian sort of feeling about about, uh, new media generally, I think, when looking... At the moment, it's a bit of a reputational nadir for various reasons, but, like, I think actually it's enormously positive.
2: Well, for me, obviously... um If I wasn't doing this, if this sort of world didn't exist, I wouldn't be doing anything Hmm. in... um, uh, I wouldn't be doing anything in written culture. Yeah. Uh, I I think that would be extremely unlikely.
0: For me, there's this, I guess as a fellow podcaster, first of all, this, somehow this confusion around personal interest versus some kind of moral obligation, I feel like I have, Mm. and I think personally, trying to navigate that balance is a challenge, it's an exciting struggle to engage with. Um, And so I think all these questions are kind of beating around this broader question about to what extent there's any kind of feeling of an obligation or responsibility to somehow go outside of what is comfortable or familiar or if in fact this is a project, you know, governed by your passions, which they can be wherever they land, and that's that's yeah, the project. I
1: think that I'm interested in going into I'm interested in going into things which are more obscure and kind of overlooked, and I'm also interested in going into things which are super, super uh, obvious. Mm-hmm. And so, like, to talk about two things that we've talked about doing an essay or uh, an episode on, uh, one that we want to do at some point fairly soon is Gaudi, who is like the world's favorite architect but Mm. also kind of curiously he's not fashionable (laughs) and like totally unfashionable like so you know like kitsch embarrassing tea towel stuff Uh but like also like so it's such an interesting and and strange and like virtuosic designer so like kind of going into uh and trying to make sense of that thing which is so like obvious you're almost embarrassed to talk about it I find really really interesting as a as a topic selection mm-hmm. and then also like there's one which I want to do which is I want to do um there's this like amazing you probably maybe you do know these but there's this like amazing series of columns written for student American students who were going to do uh, the Beaux-Arts uh, design method in the like nineteen nineteen teens nineteen twenties, and it's like this kind of weird window into, like two completely unfamiliar cultures, like being an early twentieth century American architecture student and um, the like French Beaux Arts design method, and like that's also something which that's something which I think maybe one person has written a blog about this book, mm-hmm. like that's the extent of its kind of contemporary cultural. Surface area. Um, it does. It pops up in some things. So I think. It, I think Peter Eisenman mentions it at one point. Mm-hmm. But, um, but, yeah. I think that the. I don't feel that there is an obligation there. No, because I think. Like I think what, I think it feels like this is circling back to this kind of expanding the canon kind of mm-hmm. question and, like. But if everyone is expanding the canon, then I don't think we're under any obligation to do it like there's lots of amazing stuff going you know there's lots of amazing stuff going on there's like lots of lots of really fascinating books being published um I keep meaning to get to reading that one about um uh, uh what's it the one about um Communist architects in the third world or whatever it is this like very interesting one that came out a couple of years ago. Like, but that's not really something that we could ever do an episode on. I just sort of would be interested to read it mm-hmm. because but, we wouldn't be able to go to like Angola and see the building that like an East German guy built there or whatever. Mm-hmm. But that's, not, that's not within the uh, Because of the format of the podcast, which is where we talk to each other about
2: we research something and then we talk to each other about it. Um it's and, and as you say we try and deal quite closely with our responses to the topic, we are stuck with who we are. <laughs> yeah. And if we were trying to sort of ventriloquise a different I think it would be trite. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um I we are trying to kind of be intellectually curious. Um, I don't know if that's a moral obligation, but we're certainly trying to be intellectually curious and mm. approach things uh, uh, like, at, at least with our priors kind of out there. Mm. Yeah. But I don't, I don't think in that format you can, like, we're from a very particular, sort of, very close to extremely overrepresented background, and I don't think, um... I don't think we're going to get away from that. That's just that's
0: yeah, like,
1: right. uh, yeah. but also, like, <laughs> but also that's kind of the thing about new media, though. Is like, it's just we make the podcast. It's like an RSS feed that exists on the internet. Mm. It's not. It doesn't. There is. There is no institution. Mm-hmm. It's a kind of. It's a hobby which exists as files on the internet, and there is. I don't feel like. I don't feel any guilt in the sense like I don't feel like we're taking up space like I don't feel like we're consuming the entire possible bandwidth for architectural podcasts that could exist in the world I think like there could be so many other really good architectural podcasts which would have their own format and their own kind of priors also, and their own, you know
2: I don't think um, it's not like we're making you know okay Palladio very very trad very trad subject <laughs> but um, it's not like there's a huge wealth of podcasts looking at Palladio, uh-huh. the, this incredibly obvious topic. Yeah.
1: No, that's what's funny about it we're, not,
2: it. we're not making the 20th take desperately trying to scrabble around for something novel to say.
1: Mm. Um, yeah, but that is the thing, you know, like the <laughs> very, very kind of things which people think they know very well, actually often they don't know very well and often like people aren't really talking about very much or very often mm-hmm.
0: um, yeah and there's a there's always this risk that these subjects which we assume we understand then become overlooked or their value decreases or um, they get lost entirely from yeah. the discourse
1: yeah I mean I sort of thought that a bit when we were doing Le Corbusier which I do want to go back to at some point, uh, and maybe do another ten episodes on. But you know, and like everyone, th- everyone thinks that they know Corbin, Corbin his work. Um, but it feels sometimes as if, like eighty percent of what people are talking about is like, you know, the kind of psychodrama with Eileen Gray or something. Mm-hmm. You know, like these these things which become. Which I guess because they're like emblematic of like the past sins of like uh, misogynists in the discipline. But it's sort of, you know, he like he's the preeminent architect of the 20th century for lots of reasons. And if you're interested in like the reasons for and the kind of operation of that influence, then you sort of need to really look at the buildings and kind of think about think about what, what it, what's in them, what they are. Architecture is, in one way, very, very accessible
2: because we are all forced to interact with it all the time. But in another way, it's not because to look at a Le Corbusier building, I think it's very difficult to get very far with understanding architecture without going and looking at buildings in some depth. And that's very difficult (laughs) because they're in a particular place in the world. In each case, they are unique.
1: Yeah. Um...
2: And that means that it, it, obviously, given that it's very hard for people to really get very far understanding buildings, um, people are going to get a lot more of, of stories. Yeah. So like a lot of the takes that, that I think are well established are an idea from someone's book. That's a kind of common, or like an idea of what a book of theory is about. They're kind of more widespread than particular nuances of work which are difficult to talk about and very <laughs> and can only be kind of experienced yeah. uh, by a lucky few.
1: Yeah, also sort of can be quite boring to describe as well. I mean, yeah. we, did, we did talk about description earlier as a thing that we tried to do, but we're also aware of its, its pitfalls, which are that uh, if it goes on longer than about 20 seconds, it becomes really, really bore- hard to follow and boring. Yeah, it's so, much worse than a picture, but actually yeah.
2: pictures aren't that great either.
1: Yeah. Pictures, you sort of think you've got it, but you haven't got it. Mm. Whereas description, you, like, mm-hmm. have enough of it quite quickly and, you know... It can only yeah. really be a cue for people to
2: look, but like, yeah. no, that's not a bad thing.
0: One of the series that stood out uh, was one of on the Reactionaries, which I wasn't actually familiar with, but and maybe for the very reason that, in a way, this is an example of a, a significant part of architectural history that is overlooked, but one that you wouldn't expect now in the present to be recuperated, but it's still equally fascinating valid and relevant to conversations about architectural culture historically and today. I mean could you talk me through that series in particular, why that was an important subject to readdress?
2: I thought it was difficult and we didn't really produce a satisfactory
1: resolution of it. That's not (laughs) one I'm particularly satisfied with but I do think it's a topic. Um, I think that one originated with you and can you I, just, in a way, can you it, kind of, as a,
0: yeah. to, to the listener who might not be familiar with the term re- yeah, reactionaries? So,
1: reactionaries, we're talking basically about architects of the 20th century. Second, hmm. actually, no. Yeah, from like the 1920s 30s. onwards, but like it's sort of episodic, we look at different bits, and they are anti modernists. They are people who say that essentially they're like turned towards, you know, Functional style, or um, kind of modern methods of building, or wherever it happens to be, is is uh, wrong, um, and that and they're fundamentally like conservatives. They're um, who are trying to hold on to or to return to uh, kind of neoclassical um, style, basically. Uh, Often curious, radical conservatives. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're just, or then they are pretty eccentric, and then you could say that there are sort of fringe, like. Politically, Christopher Alexander is not really like that, but he's kind of someone else we've talked about who who kind of has a similar critique. So the reactionaries, we talked about, um, you know, people in... uh, All the names have gone out of my head now, but uh, in the 1920s, responding... Bloomfield. Bloomfield Reginald um, Bloomfield wrote a book about, um, uh, against kind of modern architecture in the 20s. Not a particularly savoury character. And then we talked more about kind of more recent people. We kind of came, came all the way through to figures like uh, Leon and Rob Creer, for example, these um, people who kind of get their start in the kind of contemporaries of like Graham Coolhouse and uh, those sorts of architects, but, um, but pursuing a very different... Uh, um, different kind of line and trying to uh restore like traditional urbanism and to like traditional uh tradition that's not traditional but like neoclassical kind of style um in architectural design in a way actually that is one of our more topical topics because it feels like um kind of trad sort of conservative um Ideology and the desire to uh, like return to those, um, those kinds of forms of building uh, is like a kind of continuous presence in, in contemporary discourse and it's something which does come up. You know, you have the whole kind of think tank um, uh, ecosystem around those, around those issues sponsored by people like Prince Charles and like various other uh, um, uh, kind of reactionary billionaires around Europe and um, but yeah I mean why were we? I wish there was a way
2: I wish in that time there was a way in which we could kind of knit that together
1: with more progressive reactionaries if that's not a you know um, progressive yeah more like, progressive like anti-modernists yeah because the, like, the reactionary element of it is the desire to go back go back to, to archi- the true thing yeah to architecture R- before modernism but yeah. actually which is in some way universal
2: And eternal, often.
1: Yeah, Um, which generally is the architecture of either sort of Palladio or sort of the early 18th century.
2: In England, it's the Georgians. Yeah. It's Bath. Yeah. Um, But uh, I think in America, it's possibly... uh, I don't know, is it like different? the anti, like the municipal build buildings of the antebellum South. Yeah, uh, I'm not entirely sure. Yeah. Uh, uh, or something uh, 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 combined with um, like Thomas Jefferson. Yeah, yeah. and it's obviously
1: uh, it's this weird kind of like conservative utopianism. It's mm-hmm. completely anachronistic. It It has like a, it has you know just like a completely a complete misunderstanding of. Of, of history, because it's the, it's the kind of idea that something which is a very specific moment in time anchored in a particular context is actually a sort of eternal God-given but
2: truth. that's kind of way. fine, because, I mean, Palladio's doing that too. Sure, I mean, everyone, um, like... There's if, nothing wrong with, like, having your theory not making any sense. <laughs> if the buildings are good. <laughs> like, uh, architecture theory generally, where it isn't just descriptive, generally doesn't make much sense. It, it making sense is tangential, Um, It's a very strong impetus.
1: Yeah. Um, But I'm not sure that we were necessarily trying to... We definitely weren't trying to, like, recuperate those people, but I think we were interested in... We were interested in them as a sort of, like, a through-line through, like, 20th-century architecture. Like, all the way through, there are people whose sort of shtick is that they're against the modern uh, style and the modern world Um, I
2: think there's a problem with discussing them which is that it's a tendency which kind of does uh, at an intellectual level I think it does exist in a continuum with a lot of the rest of architecture but they are are often quite prickly characters they're engaged in a a kind of acrimonious dispute often kind of political as well which means that they kind of there's a kind of split down where it might be more interesting to talk, which is kind of like uh, the more progressive or thinking wing going into yeah. the kind of, to kind of people who think that... Um, a lot of people think there's something deeply wrong with, with the kind of way things have been going for a while. That's not a strange sentiment. Yeah.
1: Uh,
2: but I think that because there's that kind of fissure, um, it, it's meant that, that possibly the people are a bit too strange...
1: Uh yeah, you're either side of the line, aren't you? yeah because really that, I guess like um someone I mean like Korea has done some things that are kind of interesting buildings,
2: but a lot of them a lot of the stuff that's built is just not that
1: good, yeah
0: but so just to go back to this this draw to the reactionary subject, yeah, it's in a way, as you said, it's not recuperating these figures, it's more about tracing this through line, yeah this kind of. Uh, polarity uh, through architectural, recent architectural history around uh, conservatism and, and progressive thinking when it comes to um, referencing antiquity, yeah. in a way. But you said you weren't quite satisfied with where you got and George, you're suggesting there is another stab to take at it.
2: I suspect we won't actually do that stab, but there definitely is Someone could do a better job of it than us, I think. Um, because I think we got stuck with these, with kind of spending too much time criticising the architecture of some stuff, which often isn't that great. But there's a real, there's a question that we're perhaps not that well set up to answer about, like, why um, people can be, there's a it's reasonable for people to be kind of conservative about place, because it's, tied up with identity and memory and um, and that's a kind of powerful through line uh, like it is something that people have always been drawn to Yeah. and reaching for a certain antiquity but but its place in the modern world is strange like in the past it was completely normal to say the present is fallen but we can make it a bit better by going to the past, and what it produces is something completely different to the past. The The 20th century reactionaries are doing the same thing. They're not producing buildings like Palladio. Mm. They're producing different ones. It's not a project which I think has kind of worked yet. Um, but the... the, the I, I'm not, I haven't resolved in my
1: mind what the, the role and how that works. It's difficult because, like, what's the what's the boundary between... I think there's just a definitional issue. And I think that the one that we had was that it's about a kind of return to classicism as this sort of imagined universal architecture, which I think was sort of um, like a previous ideological position, even if the way it sort of locates itself historically doesn't really make any sense. Um, I think for me also there was a slight issue where... Uh, we had to get like a bit too close to people who I think just didn't deserve as much time. Yeah. Like, um, who's the guy? Who's the I've forgotten his name. Who's the guy? Who's the uh, English architect who is Quinlan Terry's kind of mentor? Ray, Raymond
2: Erith Irith. Yeah. Irith. Yeah. Um. Yeah, well you know you were talking about how um, talking about English people in the 20th century would be a bit boring and there are all those kind of modernists we don't really talk about because they're kind of... I mean, I don't think Erith was a terrible architect. Yeah. Um, but he's not quite... It's just not <laughs> he's right. not quite one of the greats of all time, let's put no. it like that. Um, and there's a lot more to be learnt from really... There's a lot more to be learned from the works of a genius than, um, someone moderately competent. Yeah. And there's a lot more to be learned from, yeah, yeah. From, from fantastic, wonderful, yeah. Uh, places that, that that can kind of, you know, give you lifelong memories and like inspire your mind and, um, (laughs) than, than sort of good ordinary stuff.
0: Where, where are you looking for that genius now? (laughs)
2: <laughs> uh, well you kind of know them to start with, right? And then I you're like, they're so they're this they're... is like something that was very memorable, then you mind your you kind of mine your past experience to a great extent, and then you come across something and become enthused
1: mm. Yeah.
0: Well, what's sparking your enthusiasm right now then?
1: Well the, we also we also try to try to not cover the same ground too many times too often. So if we take Otto Wagner, who we did, um who like I it, I think that that moment in there's that kind of transitional moment around the turn of that this the 20th century in architecture there are so many really interesting designers working at that time and I think that that certainly is like a big center of gravity for for I think for both of us that there are so many figures who's yeah because they're they it kind of connects to so many things obviously there is this sort of style transition that they are sort of Doing or not doing, or finding a kind of middle point between, you know, whether this is like um, uh, like Lutchens or um, Pleschnik, mm-hmm. or um, I mean, even in uh, Vienna, actually, there are probably several other people that we could talk. About. Yeah, um, I always think that there's something really interesting where you see the sort of um, like origination or gestation of like a type of building as well. Mm-hmm. So there's something really interesting about um buildings which get invented in the 16th century or whatever which are kind of starting to be like you're starting to have a kind of modern state um and you're starting to have the kind of buildings and institutions that go along with that and then also ones which happen in the kind of metropolis of the later part of the 19th century in the early 20th century where again people are like inventing new things and trying to work out what sort of building it should be, and um, I think that those those kind of problems, those kind of like type problems and function problems, are also really interesting, going along with. Um, and it's a great period yeah. for that because the the types of
2: the late nineteenth century that are being developed are types which are have very complex hierarchies. So it's like interaction of lots of different sorts of rooms, whereas the second half of the... Oh, like a lot of the 20th century types are serial types. Mm. Like lots of flats, lots mm. of offices, mm-hmm. shopping mall. Like these great serialisations. Whereas um, the kind of... How you do a big complex institutional late 19th century building is... Well, it's just got lots of different things. Yeah. <laughs> um, and that makes for interesting planning problems. And interesting so, problems yeah. about which generate these types... And the types eventually become kind of super elaborated.
1: Yeah, they're very differentiated.
0: Um, what, what do you most want listeners to come away with when you start to examine these really rich and complex types or precedents? Like, is there any kind of instrumental project or is it really just um, taking pleasure in one's enthusiasm and relaying that? Like, to what degree are you conscious of any kind of influence Um, I'm the listener
1: well something which we do get a lot is people say um, I listened to your podcast and now I'm going to visit this place I'm going on a holiday to this place Uh, I I was thinking exactly the same thing
2: I I, I, I don't think I could feel grand enough to feel that I was having some influence on the built environment but but encouraging some people to look at and appreciate some things culturally um, that would be very nice I think also that there is a... I have a sort
1: of... I think it's good for people to be interested in the history of architecture and to have, like, favourite architects and be enthused about, about, you know, like, great buildings, just for its own sake. Like, I think that that enthusiasm and, uh, like, I think that that is something which kind of pays off for the individual and um, to the extent that we sort of... Promote a culture of that a little bit. I think that I feel good about that. Um, Yeah, like, so. Really nice thing to enjoy. It's kind of accessible.
2: There's, there's buildings in most places. Yeah. Somebody uh, um,
1: <laughs> I was talking to somebody who said they've taken their family to the um, Aldo Rossi cemetery <laughs> recently. Uh, this <laughs> is it. Yeah. Oh, okay. Familial punishment trips is definitely uh <laughs> Yeah Yeah.
2: And that's such a one as well. It's that's like, you know That's a that's a That's real life. we're gonna that's real like, that's gonna, la, that's real, like, like let's uh, take yeah. all the kids to the Messian opera. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Luke and George, thank you so much for your time. Yeah. This has been a real pleasure.
1: Thanks.
0: Scaffold is a podcast from the Architecture Foundation. I'm Matthew Blunderfield, and I produce the show. The theme music is composed and performed by Luke Blair. Subscribe to Scaffold on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts, and follow the show on Twitter and Instagram at scaffold underscore podcast. If you like the show, spread the word and leave a rating on iTunes. Thanks to Luke and George Thanks as always to Scandalin, and thanks to you for listening. I'll see you next time.